I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And in this episode, we discuss what may be the most important Supreme Court case involving political redistricting of the decade, Gill versus Whitford, which was argued this past Tuesday. Gill is a case about partisan gerrymandering, and the court is looking about whether that raises First Amendment issues and issues of equality, or whether courts are even equipped to adjudicate the issue in the first place. Joining us to discuss these absolutely fascinating and important questions are two of America's leading scholars of constitutional law. Michael Morley is assistant professor of law at Barry University. He co-wrote the interactive constitution explainers about the election clause with Fernita Tolson and about the 26th Amendment with Jocelyn Benson. Uh, Professor Morley also co-authored the Republican National Committee's amicus brief in the Gill case on behalf of the appellants. And Daniel Tokaji is Charles W. Ebersold and Florence Whitcomb Ebersold Professor of Constitutional Law and Senior Fellow in Election Law at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. He co-wrote the Interactive Constitution Explainer on Article 1, Section 2 with Brad Smith. Professor Tokaji is author of the recent article, Gerrymandering and Association. He co-wrote an election law casebook with Nick Stepanopoulos, counsel for Whitford, who came up with the idea of the, the efficiency gap, which you will be hearing more about in this podcast. Uh, Michael, Dan, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Okay, you can tell how excited I am to jump in. Michael, as Professor Kingsfield used to stay, state the facts of the Wisconsin case, but broadly give our listeners a sense of how this districting map in which Republicans won less than 50% of the votes but got 60% of the seats uh, came to be. So this is a political gerrymandering challenge where the argument is that because there is a disparity between the percentage of statewide votes that uh, Democrats can receive in legislative elections throughout the state versus the percentage of seats that that would translate into, that this burdens the fundamental First Amendment right of Democratic voters in the state to associate with each other. And so the argument is that the court should look at the legislative map as a whole and decide that it's a political gerrymander. So really the court is looking at two separate issues. The first is, as a threshold matter, is this concept of political gerrymandering justiciable? Is there a judicially manageable standard that courts and that courts can apply to review political gerrymandering claims at all? And then secondly, if there is such a standard, what is it? What is the test? What are the criteria that courts should use in determining whether or not a particular legislative map violates this claimed First Amendment right, constitutes a, a political gerrymander? Thanks very much for that. Uh, Dan, please add uh, whatever you please to Michael's introduction. And then I want to jump right into the substance. Uh, at the oral argument, there was a lot of interest by Justice Kennedy and the other justices about a potential First Amendment uh, violation. You have written about how you believe gerrymandering violates the First Amendment. Tell us what that First Amendment argument is and, and how the justices seem to respond to it. Sure. Well, let me just um, add a, a few words to Michael's excellent summary of the case. This is really a classic political gerrymander. Um, what that means is that the dominant party, in this case, the Republican Party, although Democrats have done it plenty of times themselves, but in this case, Wisconsin, the Republican drew a map that not only was designed to maximize their share of seats in the state legislature, but to ensure that they could control the state legislature throughout the entire decade. Um, what we election law scholars know, but maybe not everyone pays attention to, is the fact that redistricting generally only happens once a decade. It happens at the beginning of the decade, uh, usually in years ending in one, so 2011, 2021. And if the dominant party is able to carve up the map the right way, just like the Wisconsin legislature did, well, they can assure themselves control even if the other party gets more votes. So, for example, in Wisconsin, 2012, 
Democratic candidates actually got 53% of the votes, yet Republicans wound up winning 60% of the seats. That is not consistent with basic principles of democratic fairness. The question before the court is whether or not it violates either the Equal Protection Clause or the First Amendment, particularly the First Amendment right of association, which I've written on before and which I think is probably the best theory for saying that this is just a violation of the United States Constitution. Because what the map effectively does is diminish the association of those with the non-dominant party, in this case, the Democrats. Their votes are worth less than votes of those in favor of the other party. And I know that for your average voter, this seems like a really arcane issue, right? Redistricting, you know, you talk to most people, they think you're talking about school districts. Um, But it matters for purposes of just about everything, whether you care about education, jobs, the right to bear arms, whatever it might be, because redistricting is what determines the composition of Congress and our legislative um, uh, bodies at the state and local level. It therefore affects every aspect of our lives, even if we don't pay attention to it. And that's why I think it's critical for the Supreme Court to police partisan politicians' inclination towards serving their own self-interest rather than the interests of voters. Many thanks for that. All right. Um, let uh, Michael, let's really focus in on this First Amendment claim. At the oral argument, Justice Kennedy seemed extremely interested in it. He uh, said in 2004 that the First Amendment was most likely the best reason for challenging uh, gerrymanders, in particular the right of voters to work together with others whose political views were compatible. And in the oral argument, He said that if a state constitution or state law ordered the legislature to make partisan maximization its overriding concern, wouldn't that be enough to violate the First Amendment? And interestingly, the defender of the plan, uh, Aaron Murphy, who will be coming to the Constitution Center uh, in December, said that if a state explicitly demanded that Republican votes be maximized, that might violate the First Amendment. So unpack the First Amendment claim and tell us whether or not you agree with it. So as an initial matter, I don't know how much – and Dan might disagree with me on this – I don't know how much ultimately will turn on the fact that this is being packaged or presented as a First Amendment claim simply because if you look at most of the Supreme Court's case law dealing with voting rights jurisprudence – the first First Amendment claims and the right to vote claims overlap with each other. That the that in in crafting one of the major tests in this area, what we call the Anderson Burdick test, that the court often named after two Supreme Court cases, that the court often looks at to analyze burdens on the right to vote. The court says this test encompasses. First Amendment and 14th Amendment rights. So the fact that there's emphasis being placed on the First Amendment here, I don't know that that's really going to do much of the work. I think that Justice Kennedy has certainly signaled his willingness to determine whether there's a judicially manageable standard for identifying political gerrymanders. The hypothetical that was brought up during oral argument, which I thought was fascinating, about a state constitutional provision expressly directing legislatures to make partisan considerations the over the overriding priority. That could be facially challenged without any sort of evidence about the particular outcome of a map. And so the fact that a facial challenge to a provision like that would be deemed judicially manageable, I don't know that that gets you very far in a situation like this where you're dealing with situations where the legislature hasn't been constitutionally required to make partisan considerations the overriding factor. And so the question is, at what point do you draw the line between permissible redistricting, permissible consideration of political factors, which the court repeatedly has affirmed over the years? The court has said you're allowed to take partisan considerations into effect. You're allowed to try to protect incumbents. You're allowed to to keep together communities of interest. 
it's a lot different between striking down the plain text of a constitutional provision on its face versus trying to come up with a judicially manageable, articulable line to separate permissible from impermissible districts. And in fact, during the oral argument, the, I don't think that the challengers did that. The, is, you know, Mr. Smith identified three separate tests and didn't explain how they related to each other, what exactly the standard should be. And that was a point that Justice Gorsuch wound up questioning him very heavily on, analogizing the plaintiff's arguments to his steak rub, I believe. Uh, yes, the turmeric sounded delicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, what, uh, Dan, Dan, I, I really want to, I want our listeners before we get into whether there's a judicially manageable standard to understand as clearly as possible what the court has said about the interaction between the First and Fourteenth Amendment claims. Uh, uh, Michael just mentioned the Anderson and Burdick yeah. case. Tell us about that. And and you know, Erin Murphy said. She thought that the explicit directive to maximize partisan advantage would be a First Amendment violation in the sense that it's viewpoint violation against the individuals who the legislation is saying you have to specifically draw the map and an equal protection violation. So, so just what's the case law on the relation between the First and Fourteenth Amendment claims? Yeah, and let me say first of all that while I agree generally with Michael's characterization of the existing doctrine, the existing precedent on the question of the First Amendment right of association, I disagree with his characterization of what exactly the plaintiffs in this case, the ones who brought the lawsuit, are claiming. And so let me let me explain that a bit. So first, on the relationship between equal protection, a right under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution adopted after the Civil War, and the First Amendment right of association. Um, so um, Michael's quite right that there's some overlap in the legal standard that has been applied to voting rights under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and to claims involving the vote as a form of association under the First Amendment. That, of course, has been a part of our Constitution from the beginning. But what many of your listeners may not know is that it's really only been over the past century that our First Amendment doctrine, as we know it today, has developed, really beginning with cases around uh, World War One. So there's really three reasons why I think a focus on the First Amendment and in particular the First Amendment right of association is appropriate. The first is that we've actually got a long tradition, a First Amendment tradition, looking with disfavor on actions that discriminate against disfavored political groups. You can all go all the way back to cases from the 1950s involving the NAACP and the Communist Party. And this tradition includes discrimination against non-dominant political parties. That is, when the party in power misuses its power to exclude or weaken the voice of its opponents. Well, that's exactly what the Wisconsin legislature has done here. So an extension of this voting as association precedent to redistricting, while an extension of existing case law is actually quite consistent with its basic theme. The second reason is that association properly focuses, in my view, on the effects of the plan rather than intent. How much does this redistricting plan or other voting practice impinge on and weaken the strength of the party that happens to be out of power. Um, and this is where I really disagree with Michael's characterization. It's simply wrong to say that the plaintiffs in this case are arguing for three different tests. Rather, what they're saying is that there are three different kinds of evidence um, I'm not going to get into the social science details, but basically one of them is wasted votes. Another of them is, you know, basically looking at if both sides get 50 percent of the vote, how many seats do they get? And it turns out the Republicans get a lot more. Another one is looking at the difference between the median and mean um, uh, um, number of votes and seats that the parties gets. But the basic idea 
underlying all these tests, how much is each person's vote worth? And it's very clear, if you look seriously at any of the research, that Republican votes under this plan are worth a lot more. And the third thing, and I'll, I'll say this one very briefly because I've gone on for a long time. The reason why I think the First Amendment is really the best hook is that it provides an appropriately nuanced standard. I, I wouldn't claim, and I don't think most people would, that any plan in which there's some consideration of party violates the Constitution. But the great thing about this First Amendment right of association cases that I've summarized is that it allows a balancing test under which there might be some legitimate justifications, like drawing compact districts or keeping municipalities together that would justify a plan that has the effect of advantaging one party over the other. But the basic idea here is that drawing a plan that so systematically disadvantages one party while advantaging another, making sure that that party really doesn't have to worry for the entire decade about losing control, this is a denial of our right to have an equal voice as citizens of this great country. Michael, just just uh, the, the final beat on the, on the First Amendment, there was a really interesting exchange between Justice Gorsuch and Justice Ginsburg. Justice Gorsuch says, doesn't the Constitution authorize Congress to step in when there's a violation of equality? And Justice uh, Ginsburg said, well, what about one man, one vote and that whole line of cases? Um, uh, but, but are you persuaded by the Anderson uh, and Cabrese line of cases that voting is a form of expressive association protected by the First Amendment and that extreme uh, gerrymanders may violate that right or, or, or not? I, I entirely agree with the notion that the, the First Amendment protects the right to engage in political associations. Voting is integral to the exercise of, of those political rights. So I don't really know that anyone is disputing those fundamental principles. The, the, the main question here is, have the plaintiffs articulated a judicially manageable standard for gerrymandering? And, in, and like I said, Dan raises a, a, a wide range of good points, but at the end of the day, the unfairness that, to which he's alluding is the notion that if the if a one political party receives 53% of the statewide vote, that it would be unfair to afford them 46% of the seats in the legislature. But that notion of fairness, that notion of, of a, a direct relationship between percentage of votes that all legislative candidates receive across all elections statewide versus the number of seats a party gets in the legislature, that's how parliaments work. That's how parliamentary democracies work. But in our system where we have separate elections, single member districts, each election is considered its own independent entity and the simple fact that a particular candidate or a candidate of one party in a district might be super popular and might run up the vote and receive win with an overwhelming 70, 80 percent of the vote doesn't mean now that it is unfair that that party isn't getting proportional representation in the legislature, that simply because a party's candidates are winning by a higher percentage of the vote, that therefore all those quote-unquote extra votes should translate into additional representation in the legislature. Structurally, that's just not how our system works. And I think one of the main challenges that the plaintiffs in this case face is that they treat voters as fungible, predictable entities with static preferences, that no matter how you redraw the district lines, no matter who the candidates are in an election, no matter what the issues are in an election, one of the fundamental assumptions of the certainly the efficiency gap model of most of the, the, the plaintiff's argument is that the voters will reliably and continually can still vote for the same party, the candidates of the same party, and so our obligation is just to redraw district lines in order to come up with some ostensibly correct 
statewide outcome. But that model of voters as fungible, predictable, static is directly contrary to the rest of First Amendment case law, that if you look at campaign finance law, which talks about the importance of allowing for independent expenditures for political communications to fund advertisements, if you look at First Amendment law governing the right of political parties over their nomination processes to select their standard bearers, if you look at First Amendment law about third-party ballot access rights, throughout the rest of First Amendment case law, the court repeatedly emphasizes it matters hugely who the candidates are. It matters tremendously what the messages are, what the issues are. And so we can't just assume that, or at least constitutionally to date, the court has refused to assume that voters just reflexively, unthinkingly, consistently vote for a particular party, that however we draw up the district lines, whoever the candidates are, whatever the issues are, they're just going to keep voting the same way. And once you get rid of that assumption, I think that a lot of the, the, the plaintiff's argument, a lot of the tests that they're presenting here wind, winds up crumbling. So, um, I, I, so, so yes, Dan, Dan, Dan uh, the justices, too, expressed concern that the idea that voters are fungible might violate previous case law. So the first question is, is that assumption simply wrong? And are voters so predictable that uh, legislators can accurately predict which ones they're going to vote. And then second, uh, maybe you can get into the details of the workability of the test. And, and I'll just uh, ask you to start with Justice Breyer's sure. suggestion that uh, a workable test would be one where there is one party control of the state government, a map that creates yeah. a persistent and unjustified partisan advantage, and that's an extreme outlier when compared to other maps. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess my overarching response to what Michael has said is, let's get real. I mean, the reality of districting today is that while individual voters' votes may be unpredictable, we can be pretty sure, based on how the district lines are drawn, about who's going to win and who's going to lose. And let me just, to make this concrete, use my own state as an example. I'm in Ohio, which, as your listeners surely know, is more or less the consummate purple state. We're roughly evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. And yet since the new districts were drawn in 2011, Republicans have consistently won three quarters of our 16 congressional districts and approximately two thirds of state legislative districts. This is no accident. And I don't think anybody can with a straight face claim that it's an accident. It is a deliberate result of the very sophisticated and data-driven drawing of lines that the Republican Party spearheaded in 2011 through its red map project. Now we have Democrats, which are trying to catch up and do the same thing in states which they control and will surely be able to do so if this case does not succeed. Look, this isn't a red or blue issue, ultimately. It's an issue of incumbent politicians serving their own interests at the expense of voters and at the expense of real, genuine representation. And so for those who are skeptical of the court intervening here, either on equal protection grounds or First Amendment association grounds, I'd pose this question. Do you really think that our political process is working? And if not, do you really think that Congress is gonna step in to fix the problem? Again, I just don't think anyone with a straight face can answer that question with a yes. So if we think that part of the role of courts is, as Justice Breyer himself has written, to help make democracy work, right? To make sure that legislators in particular aren't serving their own partisan interests at the expense of we the people. This is a classic case in which the court sure should, and I'd say really must intervene if we want a more functional political process than the totally dysfunctional one we have right now. 
Michael, I'm going to ask you to answer Dan's questions on policy grounds. I understand, and you're, you're making the argument that the court should not intervene because they're not judicially manageable standards, and the, and the Constitution doesn't regulate this. But he said that we have a, a democratic uh, dysfunction with extreme partisan gerrymandering. Um, and I guess uh, I, I want to ask you, do you think we do? And if so, what is the harm of extreme partisan gerrymandering as a policy matter in your view? Well, as an initial matter, I, I want to just clarify, I certainly think it is possible that the court might be able to articulate and develop a workable standard for, for partisan gerrymandering. I don't want to be understood as saying it is categorically impossible that, that we will ever do so. My main point is the plaintiffs have failed to do so. And in fact, one of the main deficiencies in their position from both policy and constitutional grounds is that their theory allows for the supposed existence of partisan gerrymandering despite the absence of an actual gerrymander. That even where you have districts that are regularly shaped, that are drawn according to traditional redistricting criteria, under the, under the plaintiff's approach, they could nevertheless be struck down as partisan gerrymanders. Although the court has allowed for that type of approach when it comes to racial gerrymandering, simply because any consideration of race triggers, or, or at least using race as the predominant factor in drawing districts, triggers strict scrutiny under the Constitution. And so even though we call them racial gerrymandering claims, they're really more akin to intentional discrimination claims. Here, in contrast, as Dan acknowledged, simply taking politics into account, taking other political factors into account, doesn't trigger strict scrutiny. In fact, we have numerous federal statutes on the book that expressly take political party into account in determining membership of bipartisan commissions, for example, independent regulatory commissions. We take political party into account in a way we can never take race into account. So allowing courts to step in to strike down maps in the absence of anything that anyone would recognize as a gerrymander looking at that, I think causes serious issues. There's one point that that again, on a mix of policy and constitutional grounds, I think is worth emphasizing here. If the court recognizes a the, the type of broad claim for political gerrymandering that the, the, the plaintiffs are advocating, that's going to have tremendous potential ramifications for Congress's power. Because if the court recognizes a new constitutional right against political gerrymandering in state and local in state and even local elections, under the 14th Amendment, Congress then will have the power to enforce that right under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. And in City of Bernie v. Flores, the Supreme Court has said when Congress is enforcing constitutional rights, include, and in previous cases, let's say, including the right to vote, it can go beyond enforcing that right. It can enact prophylactic legislation that it deems related to enforcing that right. And so if we create a – or if the court recognizes a broad right against political gerrymandering, that's going to dramatically increase Congress's power to regulate the outcomes of state and even local elections along partisan lines. And so if you are concerned about partisan political manipulation of the process, ironically, by – recognizing a broad right against political gerrymandering, you are now giving the national government, the federal government, increased power to dictate and manipulate political results of state and local elections in ways that they currently couldn't. And I think that that is a tremendous policy consideration. I think it is a, a, certainly a tremendous constitutional consideration that largely has been, has been overlooked throughout most of the litigation. Fascinating. Dan, your response to the concern that uh, Michael just uh, raised. Well, I, I think Michael's attacking a straw man here, and it's not, in fact, what the plaintiffs in this case, the voters who brought this case, have argued. But in fairness to Michael, I guess I'll say, you know, our chief justice really attacked the same straw man in oral argument. And uh, that suggests to me the real weakness of the arguments against the court getting involved here. In particular, the chief during the argument said, well, aren't you really claiming that if one of these several measures of 
partisan unfairness. The efficiency gap is over 7%. That's going to be unconstitutional, and that's going to give us all sorts of false positives. Well, that's not the argument at all, right? The argument is a much more nuanced one than that. And it's that where there's a substantial and lasting advantage, right? not just for one election, but extending over a period of years, the state has a really strong burden of justification. They've got to come up with some really good reasons why this massive advantage and lasting advantage in favor of the party that drew the lines is justified. And I think it's really hard to contest whatever you think about judicial involvement in this question, that Wisconsin utterly failed to come up with any good reason for drawing a map that was so skewed in favor of the Republican Party, which controlled the state's legislature at the time. So, you know, I suppose we can reasonably disagree on whether or not it's appropriate for courts to intervene here. I, I think it really is essential for them to do so if we're going to address a state of affairs that I don't think anyone can seriously contest is justified. Um, um, but there's really not much question that in this particular case, Wisconsin, this is a plan that overwhelmingly favors the party in power, ensuring their control of the state legislature, regardless of how the people vote, and that this has some real great harms for any of us who care about democratic governance. Great. Thanks for that. Um, Michael, a, a response to uh, Dan's last point. If the court were to intervene and adopt the efficiency gap standard, what would the effects be? Would it only strike down extreme gerrymanders like Wisconsin, where a party can win a minority of votes and a majority of seats, or might it lead to more Madisonian deliberation more generally? Well, I think it's going to lead to unpredictable results simply because, as the Chief Justice himself pointed out, courts' predictions about the political effects of particular redistricting maps have been pretty bad. The, 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 the chief pointed to Bandemir, pointed to Vyeth. These were presented as examples of political gerrymanders that the court had to strike down. And he pointed out that within a, within a few elections, while those maps were still in effect, the outcomes were the exact opposite of what the plaintiffs in those cases had been predicting. I mean, I think any observer of our politics over the past few years would be very surprised at the notion that a court would conclude as a matter of constitutional law that it can reliably enough predict I mean, Dan was talking about the long-term implications of a map, that, that over the course of its lifetime, it will systematically result in a partisan advantage. The notion that we know what's going to happen three, four elections from now, six or eight years from now, I think is an extremely high burden. And so if the court adopts a test that incorporates that standard, I think that it's going to be very unpredictable when a court is going to feel comfortable enough to say, Eight years from now, no matter what happens, no matter who's running, no matter what the issues are, given these districts, I'm confident that one party is going to systematically dominate the legislature. I just don't know that we, we can reliably say that, and that's going to start looking like the court politicizing the enforcement of, of constitutional rights. And this gets back to the question of, do we then have to constitutionalize one particular view of social science, right? There's, there, there's the famous quote, the Constitution does not adopt Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. And again, the, the Chief Justice made the point, or one of the justices made the point that over the past decades of redistricting uh, challenges and political gerrymandering challenges, there's constantly changing, constantly evolving political science models, uh, approaches to trying to identify a permissible versus impermissible districts and just stopping at one moment in time and saying, this is it. We finally found it. Let's constitutionalize this. I, I think the court found very troubling. And I think just as an empirical matter, it, it's very, very, it's much more difficult. And I think the plaintiffs in, the, in this case were acknowledging to accurately and reliably predict what's going to happen eight years from now. 
Thank you so much for your quotation from Justice Holmes's uh, famous uh, aphorism in the Lochner case, which listeners uh, should be aware of. And yes, you're absolutely right. Justice Alito was essentially saying in the oral argument that the First Amendment doesn't adopt uh, Professor Eric McGee's uh, notion of the efficiency gap. So, Daniel, what about Michael's point that uh, courts are bad at predicting the political outcomes of their decisions, that the racial gerrymandering uh, and campaign finance cases have had unintentional results and that it's wrong to assume that even if the court adopts the efficiency gap standard in this case, yeah. it would save American democracy. Yeah. So the first point is that the efficiency gap isn't a test. And I keep hearing this mischaracterization, but it's simply wrong. It's not the legal standard that the court will apply. The legal standard that the court will apply is the legal standard for rights of association or the right to vote under the Constitution. Rather, the efficiency gap is one of several ways of measuring the degree of partisan unfairness and the lastingness or durability of that. And the second point is that it's just simply wrong to say that we can't predict with great accuracy how durable a partisan gerrymander will be. Um, Look at what's happened over this decade. People predicted in states like Ohio and Wisconsin exactly what has happened, which is that the party that drew the lines would be able to hold a substantial advantage in the state legislature, even when they get 50 percent or less of the votes, just as the technology for drawing these insidious gerrymanders that distort representation and dilute our voting rights has improved dramatically, right? We've had technological advances that make it very easy for the map maker to skew the lines in a way that will ensconce them in power. Well, just as that technology has increased, so have the means by which we can measure the durability, the lastingness of a partisan gerrymander. And so to talk about something that happened 30 years ago seems to me entirely off base when both the empirical metrics of measuring the magnitude of gerrymanders has improved, as has our ability to predict their lasting effects. And let me just go back to this core point. It is a denial of both the right to association and the basic right that all of us have to an equal vote if the dominant party can effectively lock out not only the opposing party, but those voters who support that party for an entire decade simply by drawing a map that so skews to their favor. Thanks for that. So, Dan, you have uh, acknowledged, uh, like Justice Kennedy, that if a manageable standard could come up for measuring this First and Fourteenth Amendment violation, then it might be consistent with the Constitution. In the oral argument, Justice Kennedy seemed to say that if there's an overriding partisan goal, then the burden should shift on the legislature to show it had something else in mind beyond punishing the political opposition. So, and and then there are all these three tests and so forth. So why hasn't the magic moment arrived and and why aren't uh, these these tests a plausible way of measuring an overriding partisan goal? And just to add one more thing, Justice Kennedy and the court have said in the racial gerrymandering cases that when race is the overriding goal, then the burden should shift. Why shouldn't there be symmetrical uh, shifting when partisan advantage is the overriding goal? Yeah, so I think there are really two reasons why this issue is so coming to a head right now. One of them has to do with just how extreme the partisan gerrymandering was in the last cycle. Uh, You know, there's a book out called Rat F blank blank. KED, which goes into this in great detail, right? Expl- yeah, no, I, I, this is a family program, I'm sure, Jeffrey. Um, um, but, you know, it's, it, 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 it's really quite amazing if you go through this book. It wasn't just Wisconsin and Ohio. It was throughout the country um, that th- these really extreme maps were drawing. And it's also clear that these 
maps are part of the dysfunction in our political system that has people across the political spectrum justified. The other difference is that the means of measuring the effect, both just how much of an advantage the dominant party gives itself and how lasting that advantage will be for politicians from that dominant party, they've improved dramatically over the past three decades. Now, I do think it's going to be really important for the court to have some legal doctrine, some legal precedent to hang its hat on here if the voters who've challenge this extreme gerrymander are going to prevail. And that's why I think the right of association is so important. I've authored an amicus brief with a bunch of law professors. And as you mentioned earlier, I have a law review article called Gerrymandering and Association coming out in the William and Mary Law Review that's available on SSRN. And, you know, the interesting thing is that there actually is this long line of precedent, which treats voting not as speech, but rather as association protected by the vote, in, in protected but rather by the First Amendment in various contexts, and has developed an eminently manageable standard, basically a balancing test for determining whether these plans are unconstitutional. So the parade of horribles that Michael suggested earlier, we're going to have all sorts of plans that really aren't partisan gerrymanders being struck down. I guess I have to say that's just a, a mischaracterization of what plaintiffs are arguing and what I think the court will ultimately do. I think they're going to adopt a more nuanced standard that winds up striking down the most extreme partisan gerrymanders, but not every plan that might have a slight benefit for the incumbent party. Thanks for that. Uh, all right, My, uh, M Michael. What do you think Justice Kennedy is going to do? What what t test do you think he might adopt, and 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 what do you think the effects might be? Trying to predict what Justice <laughs> Kennedy is going to do is something that I am notoriously <laughs> terrible. <about. laughs> so that 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 I think that might be that might be your hardest question. I do think, based on the oral argument. Whether you want to say that the that the plaintiffs have proposed three different standards or three different ways of trying to measure the same thing, those are just in, from my view that's just different ways of of pointing to the same problem. The fact that a legislature needs workable a workable test to use in order to figure out whether a particular set of districts is permissible. And if the court were to adopt the plaintiff's approach and say, well, here are three different ways of measuring potential problems, but these ways can point in different directions or these ways can talk, contradict each other. They're not always going to, to lead the same way. That's not giving state legislatures and other redistricting entities enough guidance as to what is and isn't permissible. Give, there, there have been cases where the Supreme Court has said, we find the facts before us so egregious that we're going to strike this down and we're not going to bother articulating what the standard is, what the dividing line between constitutional and unconstitutional is. That is not the approach that the court has chosen to adopt in the political gerrymandering context. And I think that in light of where we are, especially in light of Viath, the court isn't going to strike down the Wisconsin scheme if it finds it based on the alleged extremity of it without being able to articulate a workable specific standard that explains how these three possible approaches relate to each other, that clearly explains what legislatures may or may not do in terms of their redistricting. And I don't think the court is persuaded. I don't think that Justice Kennedy is persuaded by the plaintiff's approach by the by the plaintiff's argument, I do think that there are that there are flaws in the efficiency gap as a means of trying to measure this unconstitutionality. I do think that the plaintiff's failure to explain the relationship of these three measurement tools to each other winds up undermining their case. And at least some of these considerations, some of these approaches were are at least variations of ones that the court has rejected in the past. So in the absence of a clear, specific, articulable standard, I don't think the court is going to just say, we're going to strike down extreme gerrymanders and we don't have to worry about 
what the what the dividing line is. I think the court has called for a dividing line, and we don't have it yet. Okay, uh, Dan, um, we have thrown around phrases like the efficiency gap and the three tests without really unpacking them. Yeah, you've got. Uh, we're going to have closing arguments after after your intervention, but say say you've got two minutes yeah. to explain to our listeners. What standard do you think Justice Kennedy would adopt? Explain as clearly as you can what that standard would be and then sure. tell us whether you think he'll adopt it. Yeah. So I think the, the standard Justice Kennedy should adopt, because I'm, I'm going to refrain from prediction because this is the one point on which Michael and I actually agree, the difficult uh, difficulty of predicting exactly what any justice, including Justice Kennedy, is going to do. But I think the standard the court should adopt is essentially a balancing test, which the court has adopted in other voting contexts, which Michael referred to earlier, under which plans that impose a severe burden on the party that's out of power, severe, severe meaning both large in magnitude and lasting in its effects, that is expected to last through the entire decade, which we pretty much can predict now with a high degree of reliability in which Republicans actually successfully did in the last redistricting cycle, where you've got this large and lasting effect, that shifts the burden to the state to come up with some really good reasons why they drew the plan this way. Was it geography, you know, keeping cities and counties together? Was it to ensure that the districts were compact? These, I think, would be really good reasons. But if they can't show that, if they can't come up with a good reason for why the plan so skews towards the party in power, then the plan would be deemed unconstitutional. And getting back to the efficiency gap, again, I, I feel like I've said this five times during this conversation, but that is just one way of measuring partisan effect. It's really that simple. How many votes does the party out of power waste? And so what effective gerrymanders do is they pack as many of the opposition party's voters into as few districts as possible, drawing districts like, well, the 11th district here in Ohio that's 80 percent Democratic, which makes the remaining districts more Republican and winds up with a plan that in a 50-50 Republican-Democratic state has three quarters of its districts controlled by the dominant party, in this case, the Republicans. Now, that's just one measure of partisan effect. There are lots of others that are present in this case. But if you've got this large and lasting effect, um, I hope the court will say that the burden is on the state to justify it. And if they can't, it's unconstitutional. Great. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this extremely rewarding and uh, illuminating discussion. Uh, Michael, uh, tell our listeners uh, as compactly as you can why you believe that the Wisconsin gerrymander does not violate the Constitution and why the court should not intervene. If there's one thing that we've learned over elections within the past year or two, it's that pollsters can't predict electoral outcomes a day or two before an election, much less years ahead of time, without knowing what candidates are running, without knowing what the issues are, without even knowing what's going on on the national level in, in terms of national politics. So to the extent that the plaintiffs were sa are saying a political gerrymander exists where a map gives, us a, gives a political party a substantial durable advantage that's going to last for six or eight years, if a court is being nonpartisan and honest, I think it has to say we have no idea what is going to happen politically six or eight years from now, that even if we were to adopt that as a standard, as a practical matter, it is going to be impossible for us to say, yes, we know with sufficient reliability that eight years from now, no matter who's running, no matter what the issues are, no matter what has occurred on the national level or the local level, this party is likely to, to, to dominate the state. I just don't think that the court is comfortable with that level of political prognostication. I don't think that the public would find such judicial predictions to be persuasive, that they would view this as the court getting involved in the electoral process, trying to manipulate electoral outcomes. And it's those institutional concerns that the chief justice himself expressly reiterated during oral argument as a means for as as one of his main motivations for wanting to stay out of this so without a clear 
specifically applicable test that would allow courts to identify political gerrymanders without having to engage in such speculation, I don't, I don't think the court is likely to adopt one. And the notion of simple balancing, I think, is leaning things, making things too subjective. The notion that the court is going to weigh severity versus justification on a subjective ad hoc basis, I think that's going away from the type of objective standard that the court has been searching for and that I don't think the court has found yet. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Dan, last word to you. Why do you think the Wisconsin gerrymander does violate the Constitution and what should the court do about it? Well, Jeffrey, let me thank you, first of all, and go back to the reason why we consider the right to vote to be so precious in our democracy. The Supreme Court, going back to the 19th century, has said that the right to vote is fundamental because it is preservative of all rights. What that means is that everything else we care about in a democracy, whether it's education, you know, our ability to get a job, having a well-functioning economy, our healthcare system, it, it depends at least in part on who we elect to public office. And with Wisconsin's gerrymander, as in many other states, including mine, We've got incumbent politicians serving their own interests at the expense of the people, drawing maps that will keep the dominant party in power regardless of whether it's a good year for the opposition. So when you've got a plan that in 2012, for example, 47 percent of the votes go to Republicans, and yet they get 60% of the seats, we all have to acknowledge something is seriously wrong there, especially when we dig deeper into the evidence and we find that that plan is very likely to last throughout the remainder of the decade. This simply isn't a process, or isn't a problem, I should say, that's going to fix itself. That if we want a democracy in which all of our votes and all of our voices are really equal, it's imperative that the court intervene and strike down Wisconsin's extreme partisan gerrymander. Thank you so much, Michael Morley and Dan Takaji, for a truly illuminating and insightful discussion of this crucial question involving politics and the Constitution. We the People listeners, Justice Louis Brandeis liked to quote the prophet Isaiah, Come, let us reason together. And I feel that each week on these podcasts, I am learning so much from the public reason of our guests, and I hope that you are too. Michael, Dan, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeffrey, and thank you, Michael. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Ogana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. Also, please, We The People listeners, be sure to rate We The People on iTunes and other platforms. It helps others learn about what we do. And finally, despite that inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the engagement, passion for lifelong learning, dedication, and insistence on cultivating your faculties of reason and reasoning together that all of you demonstrate every week when you tune in and learn with me about the best arguments on all sides of the fundamental constitutional issues that face our country. Please join the National Constitution Center to signal your engagement and to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.